Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. The luxury experience of ordering custom clothing is available to all at Indochino. They've now expanded their offering to include the female form. In select cities, Indochino has introduced a new tailored experience for women, so everybody can find their perfect fit in a made-to-measure suit, all for a surprisingly affordable price. Book your showroom appointment today at page.indochino.com slash womenswear. That's page.indochino.com slash womenswear. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Alex Kalanorkas, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Welcome to our latest episode, which is the latest again in a new mini-series we're running for the podcast. It's a series of debates and discussions around the ranking of top drivers from some of Formula 1's most famous teams. This time around, we're discussing a squad that has gone 14 years without securing a title, but did return to winning ways after a long dry spell last year, Alex McLaren. But before we dive into ranking our top 10 McLaren F1 racers, let's ask the person who's come up with the list, who has done the ranking, uh, to explain just how he puts these lists together. Kev, I mean, yeah, what is the, what's the method rather than the reasoning behind you do this? How, what, do you, what, is the, what is the way you, is it all stats-based? Is it reading old autos report reports, books? How do you do it? Normally, I sort of have a brainstorming session where I just write down the, the sort of the drivers I, th- I think would be the rough order just based on you know, being old and having read loads of stuff and all that sort of thing. And then I do the proper job and go and, yeah, look at the, look at the stats, look at some races, look at what people have said, um, you know, try and sort of get into a bit more detail. The, the idea of this, is, this isn't Kevin Turner's 10 favourite McLaren drivers. This is, you know, supposed to be the, the drivers who uh, won the most at McLaren also contributed the most. Um, that's kind of the main crisis. It's what they did at the team, Um uh, so that's yeah, so that's wins and titles, but also some of the yeah, you know, some of the background stuff as well. 
um, what what they contributed to the constructors championship as well so you know some drivers are very successful but can be selfish so yeah it's quite a difficult set of criteria to um, to balance really um, but there's always a problem with every top 10 list so uh, it's just a matter of what flavour it is Indeed, and uh, the listeners, you may you may have uh, you may have spotted. Uh, I was so uh, so keen to ask Kev to present that little that little nugget in a different way. I completely forgot to introduce him. Auto Sports Chief Editor Kevin Turner. But anyway, we've heard from you now, Kev. Let's get uh, let's get into introducing our second guest. Uh, once again, we've got a very special guest on this podcast. You heard him in the last episode in this series discussing Williams' top ten F1 racers. He's a former F1 racer himself and current Sky Sports pundit. It's Karun Chandok. Karun, welcome back. How did you find going through the top ten Williams drivers on our last episode? Uh, that was relatively straightforward. I don't think we argued too much about that. Um, the the McLaren list is a bit is a bit trickier. I think um, a we're looking at a, a, I think a slightly longer period of time, probably an extra decade, and there's a yeah there's a there's a few few in there that I argue with Kev's list. So I look forward to getting stuck in. Yeah, we were promised uh, promised fireworks in the last episode. So let's see what comes to pass this time it, around. It, it is interesting Karun says that because this was much harder to put together as well in the first place. I mean, just to give you an idea, McLaren has had 20 winners in the World Championship and Williams had 16. So uh, that was a, it was a bigger starting list. Um, so it was and, it, and some of the some of the audio, there's one obvious person not in the list who I suspect Karun will want to talk about. But um, yeah, this was this was a, this was one of the hardest of the list of the series to do, I would say. Indeed. Well, as ever, um, for each entry, Kev, you're going to explain why that driver is in that slot. And then Karun, it's up to you to examine Kev's uh, Kev's reasoning and justifications of putting the drivers there. And of course, as we go through the list, and I'm sure there'll be a certain time as well, we'll assess the drivers that didn't quite make the cut. But starting off at number 10, it's another former F1 driver turned very successful broadcaster. It's David Coulthard. Uh, Joe from McLaren between 1996 and 2004 started 150 F1 races for the team, won 12 times, but of course didn't take the title. So Kev, why is Coulthard at number 10? So partly it's longevity, you know, contribution over nine nine seasons. Um, and yes, I mean, there were times there were times where you would say he was effectively number two. Um, I mean, he was never officially that, but he was, I you know, say, a step behind uh, Mika Hakkinen when Hakkinen was absolute uh, peak but not far behind um, you know there were certain tracks where he was just quicker and he was never he was never usually that that far behind but over the course of a season he tended not to lead the charge um, when he did lead the charge though I think in 2001 he was you know he was he was brilliant there but there was two things that happened one he was a bit unlucky and two Ferrari was in the Ferrari Schumacher era was probably up and running then and was probably a bit too far out of reach to be beaten. So that's arguably his best season at McLaren. But by then, the, the opportunity had perhaps had perhaps sort of ebbed away. So he didn't get he didn't get a championship, but he did con- contribute to constructors' titles. Um, you know, a, a long term team player. I don't think McLaren's in the business of employing someone for nearly a decade if they're not a, you know a really hardworking contributor um, to the team. Um, so that's that's what gets him on the list, really. And Karun, how do you feel about David Coulthard being at number 10? Would you have had him any higher or is there another driver you would substitute in for his spot, which is always the contentious one at number 10? I would actually swap DC with um, who Kev's got in ninth place. I think um, for all the reasons you've justified uh, DC's role and name um, at McLaren on this list, I think he deserves another place higher up because if you look at the era that he arrived at McLaren, you know, they were just coming out of the doldrums, wasn't he? It was, 96 was the second year of the Mercedes partnership. 
they were very much in that phase of rebuilding. And he'd come from Williams, who were the benchmark team at that time. You know, Williams were in the middle of winning, is it five Constructors World Championships in a row? Um, between 92 and, and 97. So they... You know they were on a roll in DC. It had obviously been there as test driver and, and race driver. So I think he he arrived at McLaren at a time where he was taking a step back down the grade. Although very quickly, of course, once Newey arrived and and the the rules changed to the narrow track groove tyres cars in '98, it, it looked like a genius move for, uh, for him to go to to McLaren and. Um, but they were at a time where, you know, there was a fierce rivalry against Ferrari. McLaren versus Ferrari at that time was was a proper battle. When you look at 98 till sort of 2001, really, I think was... Uh, and, and DC was a really integral part of that um, that team. You know, the if you, you just need to look back at some of the old autosports and you look at the number of days of testing that they were all doing and pounding around and around. And, um, you know, I think David played a, a big part in, in keeping that, um, that, that whole team competitive in that championship battle. I think also, which I forgot to mention, I think that he was better at racing wheel to wheel with Schumacher earlier than Hakkinen was. I know everyone remembers the, the Belgian Grand Prix pass, right? But before that, there were quite a few instances of Mika just sort of falling out of the way or fairly lamely racing against Michael. Whereas David really got stuck in. I mean, obviously the French Grand Prix that he picked as the race of his life when we spoke to him um, a year or two ago, you know, he, that, that was a proper wheel-to-wheel battle there and obviously hand gestures and all the rest of it. I think he was quite a good... Uh, quite a good, yeah. If if, if Alain Prost was close, was sort of close to Etten Senna overall in the list of greats. Mance was the one you'd want to put into the wheel to wheel fight against Senna. Kind of a little bit like this. I think Mika was close to Michael overall, but in a wheel to wheel fight, certainly early on at McLaren, you'd probably throw DC in instead because he was more willing to sort of get stuck in. Indeed. Well, let's come on to the driver at number nine on this list. It's 2009 world champion Jensen Button. Uh, of course, after immediately winning that title with Braun that then became Mercedes, uh, he, he left to join McLaren in 2010, raced there until uh, the end of 2016, then a wonderful appearance at Monaco uh, in place of Fernando Alonso doing the Indy 500. Started 136 times for McLaren, won eight times. Of course, Im- impressed everybody by, by winning sort of almost from the off in 2010. Kev, why have you got Button at number nine? So there were three drivers fighting out for these two slots. Um, and actually, until the very last minute, I had DC at nine. <laughs> um, and uh, for me, it came down between, between Jensen and Fernando, because I think in terms of what they delivered in the car, Fernando Alonso is absolutely astonishing at McLaren and Ferrari. And, you know, he's very high on my list of, uh, you know, I think probably he's one of the drivers with the biggest disparity between how great he was in his, and his, his record of titles, which sounds ridiculous for a double world champion, but yeah, he should have had more. But he's also a very divisive character. And obviously the McLaren, the McLaren, neither McLaren era went quite right for him. Obviously there was the, the thing with Lewis in 2007, Spygate, his involvement in that. And then of course he upset Honda a little bit, sometimes justifiably uh, when he was there the second time. So when we did, a, we, I did have a little bit of a, 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 an office uh, sort of straw poll on that one. And I think the decision was that Alonso was just a bit too divisive to make it into the list. The reason that, that Jensen gets ahead of, of David um, on this, for two reasons really. One is, um, and I'd be interested to see what Karun thinks of this, but certainly people I've spoken to at McLaren say it's basically the reason that, 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 that Jensen and Lewis worked together so well at the team was down to Jensen. Lewis is still a bit still a bit young and a bit, you know, kind of, you know, want to beat everyone. Uh, McLaren weren't very good at managing 
managing drivers. I think that's been, you know, that was certainly the, the historical problem. And it was Jensen that kind of did the slightly older brother thing of, yeah, we can, we've, we've got different approaches, but we can work. Um, and they were a really good team. The only reason they didn't win a world championship while those two were together was because McLaren couldn't quite deliver a car that combined enough reliability with enough speed against Red Bull and Sebastian Vettel. Um, I think uh, Jensen's 2011 season was absolutely superb, probably on a par, if not better, than his his world championship winning campaign with Braun as well. And I would argue probably better than any single season that, that, that DC managed as well. So very nip and tuck between the two of them. They both were there a long time. Um, both had some brilliant moments, um, but you know Jensen outscored Lewis Hamilton across the three years they were together in terms of points. Um, there's not a lot of people that could say that. Well, Karim, we know uh, you'd have shuffled Button one spot down the list to number ten. But yeah, what are your what's your assessment of his impact at McLaren and also his impact sort of as a Formula One driver generally? You know, you raced against him uh, in twenty ten, the first year of uh, of his time at McLaren. So yeah, what what do you what do you what do you think of Jensen and his place in Formula One history? I think Jensen is a slow it's a funny career, isn't it? Because I I go back to two thousand when he arrived in F one. And, you know, it was like, oh, my God, this is this is the Michael Schumacher beater. He's he's arrived into Formula One. Unbelievable qualifying at Spa. Brilliant race at Hockenheim, Brazil. You know, just this this is it. And then it kind of lost momentum in the Benetton Renault years. I think it, it took a little bit of fizz out of him. And then uh, 2004, he had a great year at BAR, but then they weren't ever quite there then you had the disasters of 2007 and 8 and so you know you got 2008 and it's like mm, right. we've had Jensen's had nearly a decade in F1 we've never seen him have that real championship opportunity that you know we all thought his talent deserved in back in 2000 uh, and then he got that in 2009 and um, I think when he went to McLaren Obviously, a lot of eyebrows were raised. Um, a lot of people wondered uh, just how he'd stack up against Lewis. And I think actually looking back, you know, Lewis had a bit of a wobbly period um, with various incidents, mainly with Felipe Massa, it seemed, in that period. But uh, I think looking back, even now, it's funny how, although we know the stats, I think people... Uh, are always slightly surprised to hear that Jensen outscored Lewis in terms of number of points in that in that era. Uh, maybe it's because of just the level of success that Lewis has had since then. Um, but I think J- Jensen was was good for McLaren at that time. You know, when after two thousand seven, they they'd had a couple of years with with Heike, and um, you know he, he was never really close enough to push. Lewis in in 2008-9 I think they McLaren prior to that have always tried to have two number one drivers basically haven't they They've, they've tried to have two drivers who are right up at the top and then obviously mathematically if one one's in the championship chance and they favor him but they they've generally had that and and finally when Jensen joined in in 2010 and started winning very quickly you know he won in I think it was Melbourne and in uh, China, wasn't it? He won early on in, in that first season. And before you know it, he's ahead of Lewis in the championship. And he was a title contender all the way through that year. And he had drove some brilliant races. I th- I'm thinking of Spa 2012, I think it was, where he was just unbelievable. Suzuka is winning against Vettel and that dominant Red Bull at Suzuka. 
uh, incredible performances. So he had some really big highs, none bigger than Canada 2011, where he came from the back to win. Um, but it was also at a time where he, they came up against the, the Red Bull juggernaut, really. And, you know, they I think while they had some opportunities in 2010 and 12, they were never really um, title contenders uh, in the same ways that, that they were before. But I think he, he had a very calming influence, very professional um, is the word that gets used a lot by people at McLaren who work with him. And, and I think he was generally very well liked. I think also, and this sounds ridiculous given that he arrived as reigning world champion, I think his McLaren years sort of add an extra sort of credibility to him as a driver um, because he had such that interesting first decade in F1 which culminated in a shock title and he then went, right, well, I'm going to go and join McLaren and be against the guy that everyone thinks is probably the fastest driver in F1 and I, I must admit, I was kind of a Jensen fan at the time and uh, I was one of those people raising my eyebrows. I was like, you sure, Jensen? I'm not sure that's a great idea going alongside Lewis. But, you know, he showed that he was top top quality. Um, so I think it added to, although he didn't add a title, I think it added to his standing in the sport, his time at uh, his time at McLaren. I mean, you could argue, obviously, that McLaren was less competitive by the time that he left than when he joined. But I don't think that you would say that that was Jensen's fault. I don't think there's a lot he could do about some of the developments that went on there. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Well, let's move on to the driver at number eight in the list. It's Kimi Raikkonen. Drove for McLaren between 2002 and 2006. Went on the following year to win the world title with Ferrari. Started started 87 races, won nine times, but didn't take a title at McLaren. Now, Kev, it's interesting because when we talked about Kimi Raikkonen and his place in the top 10 Ferrari drivers podcast, we said, well, actually, his better years, his more impressive years had just come when he came from McLaren. So why have you got him at number eight on this list? Um, well, I mean, I think if it was on raw speed, he would probably be higher up the list. I think he was absolutely phenomenally quick at times at, uh, you know, at McLaren. Partic- I mean, everyone honestly thinks of 2005 um, is, is the obvious one. But actually, there were there were examples outside of that. I mean, his win at Spa against Schumacher in 2004, in that dominant F2004, was, I think, one of his one of his greatest drives. And against someone who knew how to, you know, knew, knew how to race right, whereas his Suzuka win... Which was which is more famous, and I did put number one in the Raikkonen top ten drives list. But you know, Fisichella, I think there were ten drivers on the grid who would have not defended thin air quite so early in those last couple of laps. But you know, it was still an incredible charge through the field, right? So he was fantastically fast at uh, at McLaren. Didn't quite get the job done. Now some of that was obviously due to the car reliability, but there are also things like you know, flat spotting the the tire at the Nurburgring. Okay. I know that uh, uh, yeah, he was very unfortunate. You know, lasted that longer, brilliant. But really, he was being put under pressure by someone in a car that wasn't as fast. And I think Fernando Alonso was the right person to win the 2005 title because I think if Kimi was faster, Fernando was better essentially. Um, and yeah, it just it just never quite, it just didn't quite come together for him. Um, and of course, the the last season that he had there actually was 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 the least one of the least competitive for. Um, for McLaren although of course again same with the Jensen argument you can't really blame Kimi for that as such but you know there are people at McLaren that say he's just his feedback just wasn't enough you know there wasn't and you know he tell you he might tell you something once but he wouldn't whereas a Marcus Schumacher or even probably a Lewis would make absolutely damn sure that you knew what he wanted Kimi was like well if you haven't if you haven't done that you haven't done it so spectacularly fast I think really it sums up his career spectacularly fast brilliant on his day but didn't make the most of 
the skills and talent that he obviously had. I think between 2003 and 2005, there was no faster driver on the planet than Kimi, honestly. I think that the Michelin tyre in that era really suited his driving style. Um, he just sort of seamlessly filled the hole that Mika left at McLaren. He, he arrived and the 2002 Ferrari was a dominant car, but he was already there fighting. Um, 2003, he was in the old McLaren that year and was a contender for the championship all the way until until the end. So um, I, I think, yeah, I think he... Did he fulfil his potential in Formula 1 across his career? No, um, as Kev's just mentioned. Um, but I think where we've ranked him is probably right. You know, he won races, he won... Uh, he made... McLaren a title contender again and uh, yeah filled the hole very nicely that Mika left I think indeed well coming it's one of the by the way I should point out this is one of the two along with Mika so it's the two Finns that I actually agree with Kev's list I argue with everything else okay okay well well, I'm sure we're coming on to to make a Hakkinen uh, very soon but before we do let's get to drive at number seven who is not Hakkinen you'll be shocked to discover it's uh, Emerson Fittipaldi, drove for McLaren between 1975 and 1970. Sorry, I'm going to get you wrong. <clears throat> drove for McLaren in 1974 and 1975, started 28 races, won five times and took the 1974 title. Kev, why is Fittipaldi at number seven? So he's there because, as you say, he was he's a world... Well, he took the world title in his first year at McLaren in 74 and he was sort of a contender if anyone was a contender against Nicky Lauda at Ferrari in 75 it was it was probably uh, it's probably Emerson why isn't he higher I think he basically inherited what was essentially the quickest car in F1 that hadn't had a top liner in it yet Jody Schechter was 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 too raw Denny Holm was never the fastest F1 driver and Peter Revson wasn't the top notch guy I think if if McLaren had had a, a front run in 73 they would have been able to beat Tyrrell and Lotus. They got a front runner in in in, in Emerson, and and he he duly delivered the duly delivered the title. He wasn't the fastest driver that year. Nicola and Ferrari should probably have won the championship, but weren't reliable enough. Um, uh, so he did a you know he did a he abs- you know he did deliver, but I don't think he he was quite so significant to McLaren as um, as some of the drivers on this. I mean, it's it's significant in history, of course, because it's. It's the it's the first one, so he gets sort of gets you know bonus points for that. Um, but um, yeah, and then he left. He made he made made a decision to leave in in seventy five, which left them in a little bit of a hole as well um, to go and find uh, go and obviously join his you know his brother's team. So yeah, just there there for a couple of years, did get a championship, but I don't think as impressively as the other people on this list. But I'm I'm looking forward to hearing what Karun what Karun thinks of that one. Yeah, Karun, I'm, I'm guessing you'd have had Fittipaldi higher up the list? I had Fittipaldi ahead of... Um, I basically swapped the, the next two. So I had him ahead of who um, Kev's got in number six. Because I think there was... Um, the, correct me if I'm wrong, but he was quite instrumental, wasn't he, in making sure the Marlboro backing went to McLaren yeah, at that time. And I, think, and I think when I think back to my reasoning for putting a list together like this, it's got to be about impact for the team. And that Marlboro backing was essential for McLaren's success for the next two and a half decades, probably. So um, I think, A, that was very instrumental. B, he arrived uh, and won a world championship very quickly. 
uh, and then finished second in the following years. You know, he's only there for a couple of years and then finished first and second in the World Championship. So that's, um, yeah, so to me, I would have uh, Emerson one place higher up than than where um, Kev's got him. Well, let's go on to that driver at number six. It's James Hunt, drove for McLaren between 1976 and 1978, started 49 races, won nine times, and of course took the 1976 title. So Kev, we know where Karun would have had James Hunt. Why have you got him at number six? Yeah, I mean, the, the Marlborough thing that is, is, is a very good point is kind of on the sponsorship side. In terms of the team side, I think Hunt was just plain faster. And I think he was the first driver to really show how quick the M23 was. Um, and I guess he was fortunate to win the World Championship, of course, because of what happened to Nicky Lauder at Ferrari. Lauder and Ferrari should have won that title as well. But I think he did you know, incredible things with that, with that car. I think in some ways he drove even better for McLaren the following year, but they didn't have the rub of the green. They were a bit unlucky. Um, you know, Hunt, Andretti and John Watson all should have won more races and been higher up in the championship in 77, but had various reliability problems. So I, I just think he, he made more of his time at McLaren than than Emerson did. And if you also think that Fittipaldi joined as a world champion, there was a certain level of experience and expectation that he had, which, which Hunt, okay, won one Grand Prix, but I don't think anyone's yet convinced he was a world title contender. So a little bit like the sort of the Keke Rosberg situation at, at Williams the, you know, in 82. He was kind of thrust into a situation, absolutely grabbed it with, with both hands. Um, so I guess I put him ahead of Emerson on the basis of I think his peaks at McLaren were higher. Um, but it is hard to argue with the bringing in two decades of sponsorship that uh, the MO was, was key to. What, what's your thoughts on James Hunt and his place in F1 history? If, you, if you'd have him one further um, spot down the list, now one of the one of the extremely famous driver from the past because of it's even it's even gone as far as Hollywood with the excellent film Rush. Yeah, but that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> and I think you know, <laughs> um, I, I think ultimately he won. Of course, he won the world championship, and he was a very very fast racing driver. There's no question about his his speed. Would he have been world champion if Lauda hadn't crashed uh, at the Nürburgring? I think Kev's answered that question already. Um, so to me, he he filled he filled that hole that Emerson left because Emerson caught McLaren completely by surprise. I mean, who who leaves a world championship winning team to go join a team started by your brother? I mean, it's just a bizarre thing to do. It's almost. It's sort of Jacques Villeneuve-esque, isn't it, when he went to BAR and neither of those moves worked out particularly well for for Emerson or Jacques. And so, yeah, I think James filled that hole very nicely and, and made McLaren a title contender. And it was obviously a controversial year with disqualifications and, and all sorts of bits and pieces. Um, and he was very quick in, in 77, those pole positions early on, you know, very, very competitive but ultimately, I think in terms of the impact he had on McLaren as a team, I think I'd put him behind Emerson on this list. Well, moving on to the driver at number five. We've talked about him just then. Nicky Lauda drove for McLaren between 1982 and 1985, started 58 times for the team, won eight races and won the 1984 title. Kev, obviously, we've discussed a little bit Lauda's, uh, Lauda's time at Ferrari, but why is he at number five in this top 10 McLaren drivers list? Yeah, it's quite difficult to place because you... I guess it probably depends on your age as to whether you think immediately Ferrari or McLaren. Conversely, I kind of feel that Lauda's a Ferrari driver. 
Um, but um, and he's higher on the Ferrari list as uh, as we know. But uh, yeah, I put him in. At, put him at five. I mean, I don't think he should have won the eighty four world title. I think Prost was better that year and should have been champion, but it was unfortunate. But he did get that title. And we've obviously just discussed that with with James Hunt. You know, he did get the job done. But the reason he's that high actually is because of his his efforts and work uh, to get the the, the tag the tag Porsche turbo sorted, you know, basically going behind John Barnard's back at the end of 83 and going, we have to run this car now and get the, get the bugs out and, uh, and make sure it works. And, um, yeah, the, the, he, he drove the, the McLaren tag sort of prototype, if you like, at the end of the 83 season, uh, and showed that it was quick and that it did have bugs that needed ironing out. And of course he was right. He, but he'd effectively contributed to making that package brilliant for 84. And you can slightly see why you'd have been a bit narked, when uh, suddenly he's got Alain Prost as his uh, as his teammate instead of John Watson, but then they actually worked well together. Um, so it was it was good for the team. It was one of those rare occasions in McLaren nineteen eighties history where um, where you had the two superstars in the team and it and it did work. Um, and they won the the constructors and drivers titles both years. Eighty five was was quite poor. He'd fall away quite a lot then, and he also attracted a lot of the bad luck. So he's nowhere in the points. Um, but I think his contribution, to go to Karun's point, I think his contribution to that sort of the Ron Dennis super team rise um, is kind of what, what gets him into that spot. To me, Lauda actually, I, I was toying with having Lauda either third or fourth, and ultimately I had him fourth on my list. Um, because to, Ke- to Kev's point, he won the World Championship in 84, arguably prosper should have won that that season um, if Monaco wasn't half points, for example. But I think, um, you know, the Lauda's impact on McLaren actually was outside the car, was much, much bigger. You know, Ron Dennis worked very hard to get him back out of retirement. And I don't know if you guys have read John Barnard's book or the book about John Barnard called The Perfect Car. Um, for anyone listening, if you haven't read it, strongly, strongly recommend it. It's one of the best books I've read in the last three or four years on, on, on Formula One. And he um, he really highlights what a key role Lauda played at McLaren in terms of getting the tag Porsche deal done earlier, getting the engine developed quicker and onto the car earlier than even Barnard wanted to. And he was obviously technical director of, you know, at the time. Um Lauda was massively influential with Marlboro and with John Hogan and keeping that part of the commitment to the McLaren program. And, you know, he was a huge part of the team. So if you think of all the success McLaren have had, it, it all, to me, so much of it goes back to 82, 83 and, and what Lauda built as this McLaren super team, as Kev just described it. I think, you know, that, that, uh, quartet of Barnard, Dennis, Lauda, John Hogan, they set McLaren up for everything that they achieved through the 80s and 90s uh, into the 2000s, really. You know? And I think that key era between 82 and 84 cannot be underestimated, and Lauda's role in that cannot be underestimated. So in terms of impact, yes, he won perhaps less world championships than some of the other drivers on this list for McLaren. But in terms of impact, I think he he had a huge, huge um, role to play. So to me, I, I I was toying with either third or fourth, but ultimately I'm going to go with fourth for, for Lauda on my list. Okay, well, let's, got, let's go to the driver that uh, Kev has got at number four. 
it's Lewis Hamilton. Drove for McLaren, very famously, of course, between 2007 and 2012. Started 110 races, won 21 times, and of course took the 2008 world title. Kev, why have you got Hamilton at number four? Well, greatest season in rookie in F1 history as a rookie, wasn't it, in 2007? Um, and I don't think he's really ever been, it's never really been suggested that he was into the political games that actually created the problems at McLaren. I think really he, his main contribution to that was just being really fast. Uh, and not really wanting to sit behind um, Alonso, uh, which was then a situation that was mismanaged. But I don't, I don't think that's Lewis's fault. Obviously, he then became team leader and world champion the following year. Um, now he did have he did have a wobble, um, as we as we mentioned earlier on. There's no doubt in that sort of particularly in 2011. Yeah, I think um, yeah he wasn't in a good a good headspace. Um, but I think you yeah, know he bounced back in 2012. I think he was superb, and you know. Although I would think that McLaren's decline after 2012 is down to you know lots of factors, some of which had been around for quite a while. You know, you you can't you know you can't help but say that after he left, the team was the team was lesser a lesser thing, and has had a long time to rebuild. So, you know, delivered a world championship, and I think apart from that blip, delivered uh, on what the car was, uh, what was what it was capable of more often than not. Well, Karun, if you're if you're bringing Lauda up, are would, you are you shuffling Hamilton down, or are you elevating him even further? I I am. I'm swapping Lauda for Lewis. I think. Um, you know, I think. Just yes, Lewis arrived. Um, you know, at a time up a, as as a rookie, and it was it was quite rare, if I'm not mistaken, for McLaren to sign a rookie at that stage. Um, you know, obviously they they'd had. Andretti uh, before Mika had already been at Lotus and things like that, but and, and the Andretti experiment hadn't really worked out. Um, let's ignore the cameo from Jan Magnussen. But apart from that, um, in general, McLaren were used to having uh, established drivers. Really, uh, Kimi was as close to a rookie as as they had. So for them to get a complete rookie in, and then I, I you know, I. I I've said it a lot over this winter, actually, and I, for me, Lewis's rookie season in F1 2007 will go down as probably the greatest rookie season in F1 history. Um, I think what he did in 2007 was unbelievable. I think the team probably could have helped him a bit more to be world champion in that year, really. Um, China being the obvious one, but it, I think across the board. So, to me, he was very much a part of... Um, he was obviously a part of the furniture at McLaren, but he, he was a, he was a big feel good story for McLaren as well. They'd taken this kid from karting and made him basically made him world champion um, across a a fifteen year period, and that's a it's a remarkable story if you look at driver development programs. That was probably the first proper proper driver development program that delivered a world champion, you know, and and really built this driver all the way through. So I think. In that respect, a huge part of the McLaren story. Um, but so much of Lewis's career has, you know, come from his Mercedes era. Uh, I think people forget that that McLaren era that he he had sometimes, which is which is a shame because he drove some great races. Um, and I think, as I said, two thousand seven for me uh, is is the gold standard of rookie seasons in F one. 
It was amazing right from the off with that move at the uh, first corner in Melbourne. Uh, but let's come on to the driver we've got at number three. And I think, Karun, I think you, judging by what you said earlier, agree with this ranking. It's Mika Hakkinen at third in the list. He drove for McLaren between 1993 and 2001, started 131 races, won 20 times, and of course, two world titles, 1998 and 1999. Kev, why have you picked Hakkinen at number three? Before we go on to that, I just want to reveal that I've done something that I don't think I've ever done in one of these top 10 uh, debates before. Uh, I think Karun made such a good case for Nicky Lauder. I've actually put a little note to swap them round. So, you know, maybe if there's an updated version of this, uh, that, <laughs> that order may... Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, normally, uh, normally it's good to debate. And you, think, oh, you could go either way, but that one was such a strong argument that uh, I think that was, uh, that's a great shout. So... Um, I yeah. should be a lawyer. <laughs> we should bring Ian Titchmarsh into the next. Uh, the next oh no, no, no! Don't do that. I'd lose anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Mick Hacken. So we're on, we're on to you know dub, double world champion at uh, McLaren after after a run of of you know that that sort of difficult period they had after after Senna left the rebuilding. If you look at in terms of McLaren wins, um, I won't give away the top two. I think that's fairly obvious. But you know, it's Lewis Hamilton on twenty-one, Amika on twenty, so right up there. But he did win two, two titles, and I think the relationship with Ron Dennis, you know, after he was almost killed in a, killed in a McLaren, um, I think there was a special bond there. In fact, David Coulthard's talked about this. Is it almost felt like the sort of Goodsbury in that situation? It didn't feel quite the same level of support. So I think for me, Mika's very much a McLaren driver. Um, and for that for that period, yeah, he should have won race. He should have won races before Hereth '97, of course. So it's a bit unfortunate to have to wait that long. But when he did, you know, he reeled off some, you know, superb victories. Took took the opportunities that uh, that were given to him. '99 was a bit shaky. Should have won that championship more easily after Schumacher broke his leg. But I think that was as much down to silly things happening, like wheels falling off and things, rather than oh, I'm getting punted around by DC in Austria and that sort of thing, rather than than anything that Mika was doing. So yeah, delivered two world titles. And even in his last year, where you'd say perhaps his motivation was was waning a bit and he wasn't quite the Hakkinen of old, he still delivered two of the two. Of, you know, fantastic victories, um, uh, and the one at Indianapolis, the you know the tie, the tire technicians and the team, you know the, the lap times he was able to do with the tires in the condition they were in, was, they, and they said it was just unbelievable. So, you know, uh, I don't think he was a complete as driver as some of the other people on this list, and pre- prob- not even a complete as driver as say, you know, Lewis Hamilton that we've just talked about. But you know, for that period of time, he was the guy, and he was going up against Marcus Schumacher and Ferrari, one of the great combinations in F1 history and came out on top twice. So, um, yeah, he had to be high up this list. I think it back to an interview that I saw uh, Ron Dennis do with Martin Brundle um, on Sky. I think I think it must have been 2014 or 15. And Martin asked him about, you know, which McLaren driver, I can't remember the exact word I'm paraphrasing, but, it, you know, was your favourite or would be the one that you'd re-sign. And Ron said, quite quickly actually, answered Mika Hakkinen. And I think it was because he was just uncomplicated and unbelievably fast. I think you have to think of that time where he arrived at McLaren, right? They've gone through the Prost-Senna era. Um, in 93, although uh, you know they weren't fighting for the championship, I think it was quite a fractious year in terms of Senna deciding whether he wanted to drive, not drive, showing up the last minute race, uh, you know, last minute at race weekends getting paid a million a race, reportedly, to drive that season. Um, and I think it was all quite fractious um, for for Ron and, and for the team at that stage. And then you suddenly had this, you know, Finn arrive 
at Portugal 93, who was quite minimalist in what he said, very, very quick in the car, um, had some shunts, made some errors, etc. But he, he showed that he had the speed to be a team leader and, and also, I think, offered a, a, a period of calm, um, which McLaren needed after the Prost-Senna era. So um, I think they they really appreciated the loyalty. And, and conversely, Mika feels, I think, so deeply loyal to McLaren even today when you talk to him. You know, when you, when you talk to him about McLaren and, and you talk to him about Ron, you, you see him almost light up. You know, there's like this, this genuine love and... and um, you know, admiration for everything that McLaren and Ron did for him in that era. Um, so to me, he is, he is a, in the same way we've talked previously about Mansell being a, a Williams driver through and through, Mika to me is, he is a McLaren person through and through. And, uh, for, you know, yeah, having him at number three was, um, I toyed with having Lauda at number three, but in the end, I think the fact that Mika was so devastatingly fast and help to rebuild McLaren from that period of, um, you think of between, what, 92 and 95, they had Ford, Peugeot, um, well, Honda, Ford, Peugeot, and Mercedes. They went through four engine manufacturers in, in, in four seasons. That's unbelievably disruptive for any team. And, and throw in a test with a Chrysler Lamborghini in the middle, you know, that's five different engines in the back of the race car. In, in four years. Um, and Mika was a constant in a lot of that era, you know, from 93 onwards. And I think he then from 97, uh, really when, when the team started to get their, get their act together, he was there at the forefront. And uh, the championship campaigns he put together in 98, particularly, um, but also in 99. And I think 2000, you know, he drove a great season in 2000. Um, you know, he, he got beaten by Michael, but... I thought it was a really, really good championship battle he put together, arguably better than the one he had put together in 99, I think. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm not going to argue in the end with uh, Mika at number three. Well, we've arrived at the point in the podcast where just before we get to the top two, we need to consider if there are any drivers that aren't on the list that could have made the cut. So, Kev, were there any particular ones? And I guess my main question is in terms of impact on the team, why isn't Bruce McLaren in the top 10 uh, McLaren drivers? Yeah, that uh, that was going to be the name that I was going to mention first. Um, ultimately, I just don't think he was he was really quite a good enough racing driver. And I mean that with all greatest respect, because obviously he did, he, he did win Grand Prix. He did take McLaren's first World Championship Grand Prix victory. And he is the, yeah, he, <laughs> it's called McLaren, right? So you can't really argue very much with his impact on the team. But it was really, I think I was, you know, I was leaning towards the on-track uh, stuff and I think I don't think even Bruce would have would have said that he was the fastest driver of his you know the, or the best driver of his generation so yeah he's almost if you're doing sort of McLaren's most important figures oh, he's number one on that list isn't he but in terms of purely focusing more towards the drivers um, then then he didn't um, he didn't he didn't make the cut for me um, similar reason for, for, for Denny Holm not not making it as well Um I think probably John Watson deserves a bit of an honourable mention as well. Um, so the, yeah, that's what I mean. There were there were quite a few candidates for for getting on the getting on the list, but 
one way or another, um, they didn't quite have the combination of um, success um, or, or impact that um, that these these ten had. Is there anyone, Karun? Is there anyone that you that you think we should have mentioned? I kind of forgotten um, Denny Hahn, but uh, now you mentioned, you're probably right. I think yeah, Bruce was the one that I was thinking of, um, but I think your justification is probably valid. Um, Fernando's a funny one, isn't it? <laughs> where 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 do you where do you lob that in? But I think ultimately, you know, it's just it was so. So, I think the negatives outweigh the positives of Fernando's time at McLaren, but both stints really, you know, brilliant. I mean, even today, if people ask me, you know, who's your favorite driver of the grid, I often say Fernando Alonso because I just I love watching the guy, I love watching the onboards of him, I love watching the first laps. He he's just an unbelievable racing driver. Um, but in terms of what he brought to McLaren, I think the negatives outweigh the positives. Absolutely. Well, let's come on to the top two in Kev's list. Starting at number two, Alain Prost. Joe for McLaren in 1980 and then between 1984 and 1989. Started 107 races, won 30 times and took three titles, 1985, 1986 and 1989. And at number one, I think everybody's really worked out by now, Ayrton Senna. Joe for McLaren between 1988 and 1993. Started 96 F1 races for the team, won 35 times, also took three titles, 1998 1990 and 1991. So I mean, I have already had some stick about this, which I think is probably predictable given that Senna and Prost probably polarised F1 fans in a way that, well, I don't think we'd seen before, actually. Obviously, there have been some great rivalries prior to that, but I think that 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 was, you know, if social media had been around then, it would have been, I mean, devastating, I should imagine, between those two. Um, And my personal preference is that I'm a Prost fan, right? The way Prost went racing is the way that I want to see racing drivers go. For me, Senna falls into the Verstappen-Schumacher camp of where's the line. So I really struggled with this one. And in the end, there were a couple of things that pushed me towards putting Senna ahead of Prost. One was was the sheer numbers in terms of, you know, he took more wins and more poles. But more more than that, the the two things were, one, I can think of, when I think of Prost's great moments, I think of him in other things as well. You know, I think of him at at Ferrari and, and even South African Grand Prix for Renault and, yeah, he he's just a great driver. Whereas if I think of of, of Senna, I kind of it's it's just got to be that yellow helmet in a Marlborough McLaren. Um, I know he, he obviously did great things at Lotus, um, but yeah, he is a McLaren driver. And the deciding factor for me was that Prost was the one that left the team right, when they were teammates. Yeah, the situation did get toxic um, between the two of them, and in the end, like for whatever you know what happened behind the scenes, McLaren went for went for Etten, right? So. He kind of won their their intra team contest, even though obviously Alan then went on and was a was a very much a thorn in his side elsewhere. So that that was kind of the reason I put I put Ayrton ahead. But it it was you know as I say I, I'm more of a Prost man than a Senna man. But I just thought for McLaren, um, Senna's Senna's numbers and impacts are just were just too big for me to to, to ignore. Um, but I'm I'm very I'm very interested to hear Karun's. Uh, counter uh, counter position. I think my counter argument goes back to impact on the team and, and the era they were at. You know, I, th- I feel like Senna arrived at McLaren when they were already well and truly established as the best team on the grid. Um, in in eighty eight, clearly with that car, they were the best team on the grid. Whereas I felt like Prost. 
you know, forget the first stint um, in 1980, but when he arrived in, in 84, he was part of that building process. And I feel like he, together with Barnard and, and, and Ron, and again, you know, I think he was a key part of putting the building blocks in place for the future, which which then Senna benefited from in some ways. I feel like, you know, in terms of his contribution to McLaren, Prost over um, over his period of time there had a bigger impact into making McLaren great, which I think was for me the the determining factor. It, it it's it's a really hard one because you're absolutely right. If you look at um, ninety one, for example, very few other drivers would have won that championship in a McLaren. I think you know Senna won that championship despite not having the best car, and you know the the great you could counter that with Prost did the same in eighty six. So to so it is a really it is a difficult one, I think, to to split the difference. Um, I sort of flip flop, but it ultimately, to me, I, I just feel like, in terms of the long term success of McLaren, um, Prost Prost made a bigger contribution um, in terms of putting the foundations in place. I think that it's. I mean, I think there's a the strong case for that. I would say though, in in sort of Ayrton's defence, there are two occasions where I think he's quite key. Uh, well, actually, you could say generally he's a Honda man, right? So he he kind of um, was really into engines, uh, and the Honda guys warmed to him. In fact, to the point where I think Alan feels that he was probably sometimes a bit hard done by because of that strength of that relationship. But so in '91, I completely agree with you. But it wasn't just the driving in the car. You know, he pushed really hard to make sure McLaren and Honda were pushing, and you know that Hungarian Grand Prix uh, pole position lap. Uh, and I think he even said it himself. This is because of the work we've done. It's not just a you know Senna special. You know he he brought the point where McLaren Honda had actually responded to Williams Renault in ninety in ninety one. Um, you know everyone remembers that as being the oh well Senna got those points on the board early and then Williams were faster. But actually McLaren did strike back and and Ayrton was a big part of that. And also remember they got their rear diffuser wrong on the nineteen ninety car and had to do quite a lot of work on that. And I think Ayrton carried them a bit through that situation as well. To argue against myself, I rather doubt that not. I rather doubt that committing only on a race by race basis in 1993, rocking up on the Thursday and demanding a million quid a race, I think that, that probably didn't do an awful lot of good for McLaren's development or continuity. So I think it's always the end of the, his time there when he was, even when he was delivering on track, he was, you know, and he, when he was trying to worm his way into a Williams seat <laughs> in 92 and 3, that probably didn't help help McLaren. Um, but um, but yeah, as you say, you can you can argue either way. I think my my favourite is Prost, but I am st- still struggling to get away from it and being the you know being being the number one in this list. What what do you think then, Alex? You've not um, you've been very very neutral so far. So what what where are you at? Fortunately, I was already deciding in my head that I was going to be so bold as to become judge in this argument, and I have to say, having heard both of your positions, I think I would go with. Karun I think I would swap them around and have Prost ahead of Senna for two reasons one the building up into the McLaren super team and the work that he did then and also because we've argued that Fernando Alonso isn't in this list for being a destabilizing influence for having a negative impact on the team and Senna has that and I mean again, I'm sure there are there, there is that as well with Prost in terms of the you know the the, the, the collisions and the, and, the, and the fact that it, it boiled over at times but just for those two reasons I'd swap them around. 
I don't know. And as you know, Kev, I like to annoy you. So, well, well, no. To be honest, I was thinking I've been so in the Ferrari one. I was argued out of like Kimi Räikkönen was on my list and argued out in favour of Jackie X, which again, I'm 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 very happy about that. On a personal note, I'm I'm certainly not going to be too upset about uh, about Alan being coming out ahead of ahead of it and I probably wouldn't sort them around if I were rewriting it but I, 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 I'm I, perfectly happy with the outcome uh, of your of your decision I, I, res- I respect your position <laughs> <laughs> well you've got the opportunity to if you're going to rewrite it for having uh, uh, Nicky Lauder ahead of Lewis Hamilton well- well, we need to give it a while. Let's see. Um, let's give it two or three years and see if Lando Norris can get some. Uh, you know, obviously he signed up for a million years now with McLaren, isn't he? That's just been recently announced. So you know, if McLaren can keep coming and bring all their facilities together, and he can start winning races and world championships, maybe he'll force a rewrite of the feature anyway. Indeed, indeed. Well, thank you very much. That's our podcast for today. Thank you, Kev. Thank you, Karun. Uh, now, th- and of course, thank you to the listeners for listening along. But just before we do go, Karun has written the uh, the cover feature that will be leading Autosport magazine. I don't know when exactly the podcast will be released, but it's the uh, 17th of February issue. Karun, you're previewing, looking ahead to the 2022 season. How did you enjoy putting that together this year? Uh, it was, it's always a challenge. You know, you're trying to put together what's the big questions going ahead of this season. Um, and I feel like this this season more than other um it's just unpredictable. You know, we genuinely, every time we've had a rules reset, the pecking order changed, as I've written in my column. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been a challenge because I feel like we could have had 15 big questions instead of 10 big questions this year. Um, but, yeah, no, it's always fun. Also, it's probably worth saying, you know, for Alex's benefit, I mean, it was filed way ahead of deadline. So, um, so far ahead, actually, you've, you've done a tweaked version as things have changed. So, um, so yeah, well done, Karun. Excellent, excellent motorsport journalism there. I, I don't know what from an editor. I, <laughs> I don't know what you could possibly be referring to there, Kev. I'm also always diligent and, uh, and I'm not. Well, no, no, you are I, diligent. I, I, am, I am with what I write, just not when it comes in. Anyway, that's completely <laughs> sidetracked. Thank you guys for the podcast. Thoroughly enjoyed, uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. And thank you to everybody listening along. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport Podcast. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never thought I'd care about gardening until I bought a house in the suburbs. But now I find myself in conversations about liquid fertilizer and I wonder, am I the fertilizer guy now? (laughs) No, no way. Everyone knows the ratio between phosphorus and nitrogen, right? Yeah, I'm still totally cool. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs>